Welcome to the Top Advisor Marketing Podcast brought to you by Proudmouth. I'm your host, Matt Halloran. Being your own loud is not new to marketing, but the mindset, strategies, and resources to help you get there are evolving faster than this industry is keeping up. It is time to find a new perspective on what works why and how to move your business forward. Listen as I interview guests to help you learn from them how to be your own loud. Let's get to the show. Hello and welcome to another Top Advisor Marketing Podcast. We have a guest today and we've never interviewed anybody like Scott Stathis. Now, the reason why I'm saying that is because we have generally focused in the RIA world or independent broker-dealer world, and he has an enormous amount of experience in the banking and credit union world, and in fact has an amazing podcast that we're going to make sure you have links in the show notes for all of you to listen. But we're going to pick his brain about a bunch of different things today. Number one, we're going to obviously talk about financial services and in the banking credit unions, but more importantly, how what he's learned is wildly applicable to you who are not involved in banks and credit unions, because they've got some magnificent ideas on how to differentiate yourself in the marketplace. So Scott, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the invitation to be on your show, Matt. Well, I don't understand why any logical human being would want to work in this area that you have been so successful in. Tell me the story about how you decided to get involved with creating organizations that focus on banks and credit unions and really how you became the leader from a thought leadership perspective. Yeah, so it's a long and winding road, and I won't go into too much detail. I'll, I'll give you a few highlights. I tripped over the industry while I was winding down a skiwear business that I used to own. So how's that for wow, yeah. <laughs> diverse? But that was way back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. So in 1991, I moved from New Jersey to San Francisco, and I ended up taking a job with a company that was ironically doing uh, training for new advisors in what was then Dean Witter. Remember that name? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, they were a very successful company company and doing new advisor training. They had what was called a broker in the box training system. And this was before the day where there were computers on ad, on advisors' desktops, amazingly. But so in any case, they hired me to help them get into the, the bank and credit union channel because banks and credit unions were growing their investment and in insurance programs at that time. And I just because of my sales-oriented nature, I got lucky and I landed Citicorp as their first bank client. So that was like pulling in a well. It took off from there. I, I left them. I was living in the Silicon Valley area at the time. I left that company because they didn't want to get into, they didn't, they didn't want to automate what they were doing. They didn't want to get into technology. The co-founder actually said to me, we believe if you put a computer on an advisor's desktop, their, pro their productivity is going to go down and never come back up again. Wow. Imagine that. So that was back in 1993 that this guy said that to me. Anyway, so I got into the tech side of the industry, fintech, CRM at the time. And I got to the point where I was running a financial planning software company and got the company sold and then was recruited by LIMRA, which is an international market research organization on the insurance side of our industry. I got recruited by them to run a subsidiary based on an acquisition they made. And that subsidiary was in the bank and credit union channel. And it was a research-oriented uh, company. So I, I shifted from from fintech to research and evolved that to where we were looking at all the KPIs coming out of the bank and credit union channel. Now, when I say that, what I mean specifically is banks and credit unions that have investment programs, they're trying to increase their productivity. We were collecting and still are to this day. So this was 2008 where I joined that organization and then pulled that out of Limer and did it for myself. 
So still to this day, on a monthly basis, we collect reams of data, performance data coming out of the channel. We aggregate that data, we cleanse it, we aggregate it, and then we present it back to the channel in the form of a research data portal that allows them to benchmark their performance against a wide set of KPIs. So if you're running an investment program, you can diagnose your success based on industry averages, industry quartiles, peer groups of your own design, and you can look at all these KPIs and how you're doing against your peers, et cetera. But after so many years of collecting data, like the, the numbers tell stories, right? And so yeah. you you look at the organizations that are in the top quintile, a top decile, whatever, on a regular basis, and you and, and you look at the numbers and you see that they're being successful, but then you start asking, well, why are they successful? And you start interviewing the advisors and the executives running the programs. After a while, you get a really good sense for best practices and what makes things happen in the channel, why advisors stand out, why programs stand out, what are the leading indicators, what are the trends in the channel that are moving the needle forward. So we do research, we do consulting, we do a series of executive forums across the country in normal time. So we're getting back to that in the fall of this year, where we are two day, two to three day offsites with executives that run investment programs. We do actually now three series of podcasts. So that's kind of how it evolved. Okay, well, you just dropped something that I've got to pick up and then you've got to elaborate on, which is what are the stories, dude? So what is making it so that there's such a huge difference between the different successes in the top top 10 percent or whatever? What, what are they doing that's so fundamentally different? Like I said, we focus on the bank and credit union channel and they're a lagging channel. So they're always a few steps behind the independent channel or the RAA channel. What's amazing to us is when we look at the programs that are successful and the advisors that are successful, they're basically learning from the successful independent advisors or the success, successful RIAs. But the advantage that they have, and some of these, some of these guys and girls are really successful working in, in in financial institutions. The advantage that they have as a client base of the financial institution A and B the partners, the internal partners they have. I mean, think of working with loan officers and business bankers and the trust department. If, if you're good at developing relationships internally, the referral flow is phenomenal. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. So if, if you get it as an advisor, I have to say that the majority of advisors don't get it yet. They're still sure. stuck in a transactional mode in the bank and credit union channel because they started just flipping CDs into annuities. But the ones that really get it and are more holistic in their approach, they're in a really sweet situation working in a financial institution. Now, there are drawbacks, but there are benefits. And like I said, a lot of people kind of look down their nose at banks and credit unions. But if you're good you can really do well in, in that channel. Anyway, I don't know if I answered your question. I think to a degree I did. Well, you did. But one of the other questions that that leads me to believe is part of your system, your program, are these two questions that you ask advisors. And by how they answer those questions, how successful they're going to be. What are those questions? Yeah, there are two related questions. But the first question, and, and I think it's a critical question, is what is your product? So ask an advisor, what is your product? and see what they say. The way they answer that question will typically tell you if they're going to be successful or not, or if they are successful or not. So it used to be the case, it still is to a degree, but it used to be the case more so that when I would ask that question, the knee-jerk 
reaction was, well, you know, my product are the investment vehicles that I sell that help my clients achieve their goals. Well, no, that's not your product. That's somebody else's products. There are other companies that make the annuities and the advisory accounts and all that. It's not your product. So what's your product? You know, they scratch their head and they say, well, it's the advice that I give. Oh, now they're getting in the right direction. So yeah. it, advice is a product, but it's still a very myopic view of what their product is. If you're a really good advisor, you have to know what your product is and, and what your product really is. It is it is very holistically how your clients experience working with you from A to Z. So I'll give you I'll give you an example. If you as a consumer, all consumers to whatever degree we are, if you think back uh, on experiences when you were purchasing something or working with somebody that wowed you, what was it that wowed you? And typically it's something about that process that was outstanding. So if an advisor realizes that their product is their process, it's the process by which they work with their clients and their clients experience that, wow, that guy really knows what they're talking about, or that girl really seeks to understand my needs in a profound way. They're really working as part of my team. Your product is your process. So when you say that, then the next question you have to ask, and this isn't this is a sub-question of the first question. I'll get to my second question. But the next question you have to ask an advisor is, for those advisors that acknowledge that, okay, I get that. My product is my process. How many advisors have spent the amount of time necessary defining their process and orchestrating their process in such a way that it communicates the degree of professionality that they want it to demonstrate to their clients and creates that wow reaction. It has to be outstanding because they're in a commoditized industry. It's a funny example sometimes I talk about is, think about how easy it is for a, think of any larger consumer-oriented company and how easy it is for them to differentiate themselves these days. They can do one thing to differentiate themselves. So Matt, what would happen if you called a fairly large consumer-oriented company because you had some kind of issue and an actual human answered the phone? <laughs> you look at Zappos, you you know, that's a great company that you don't get put into a queue, a human answers the phone, and they even have a number of rings, and then it gets escalated yeah. up. So I, oh man, brother, I'm right there with you. So that brings us to the second question. What is your differentiator? As an advisor, what is your differentiator? So here's the irony. You ask advisors that question, literally 75% of them will say, my differentiator is my ability to understand my client needs. Well, if 75% say it's a differ differentiator, is that really a differentiator? <laughs> not statistically, it is not. No, that's a little bit of a catch-22 there. So it's not really a differentiator. It's in the right direction, but it's not a differentiator. What is your value proposition? What is your differentiator? How are you going to stand out in the industry? That's a really big question, and it would take more than a half an hour podcast to get into all the answers. But is that worth thinking about? Yeah, it's really worth thinking about. Part of the answer to that is the ability. So if they feel that your differentiator is your ability to understand your client's needs, then what does that say? Well, that says that you're, the most important part of your job is the discovery process. Yep. I would submit that if you get really good at the discovery process, 
that could be a differentiator. But I would also submit that 90% of the advisors out there have not spent enough time on perfecting, absolutely perfecting their discovery process. And we can talk about the discovery process in, in a little bit, but that's that is part of it. But you know, what we're talking about is the client experience. Yeah. That is your opportunity to differentiate yourself. It's the only differentiator you have. So you better really think about the, the fact that your product is your process and that process dictates the client experience. So you better define that client experience. It better be repeatable. It better be incredibly impressive and it better enable trust. And I think that gets to kind of the direction we want to take the rest of this discussion. Sure. sure. Well, uh, before we continue that way, I hope everybody pauses right now and rewinds and listens to that segment again, it's because you have to clearly and succinctly be able to answer those questions for yourself. If you are sitting in your office right now or in your car and you're driving and you're thinking to yourself, I don't know what really fundamentally makes that experience different that I think you probably should call Scott, right? You should also be listening to his podcast and following him on social media, but we're going to continue to unpack this even more. Okay. One of the other questions that, that you gave me, so I, mean, I want everybody to know as a guest on the show, I ask if there are any questions I should ask. And Scott gave me these great questions. And this next one is like the one, two punch from what you said before, which is, what should the ultimate goal of an advisor be? So before you answer that, let's set this back up again, right? So Scott just went ahead and walked us through a process on how to understand really what your product is and really fundamentally makes you unique and different. And then the end result or the overall filter should really be what should your goal as an advisor be and what sort of answers do you get to those questions and how do you walk people through having an advisor come to an epiphany on such a huge component that, as you know, as well as I do, they probably don't know the answer to this question right now as I'm asking it. Yeah. Well, you, you get such a wide variety of answers when you ask, what should your ultimate goal be as an advisor? Some of them are good, but a lot of them are short of the mark. The bottom line is your, your ultimate goal as an advisor is to be a trusted advisor. And you can measure whether or not you're a trusted advisor. How do so, you do that? <laughs> Go unpack that, well, my friend. All right. It's very easy to determine whether you're a trusted advisor or not. And the, the way to measure that is if you're managing the majority of your clients' investable assets. If you are, you're a trusted advisor. If you're not, you're an afterthought because somebody else is managing the majority of those assets. What's interesting is when I ask advisors, are you a trusted advisor? It's rare that advisors say, no, I'm not a trusted advisor. They all think they are. Then I say, because... One of the things we collect data, right? So one of the things we do is we work with all the third-party broker dealers in the bank channel, LPL and Satera and Raymond James, et cetera. So we say, all right, let's aggregate some data. Now, we know the degree, we know the amount of investable assets, at least within ranges that their clients have. So I can aggregate all that data. I can dissect their book of business and I can show them what their wallet share is in every segment of their book of business. How often do you think it turns out that it's the case that they're working with the majority of their clients' investable assets? Hardly ever. Yeah. Oh Maybe 10% of the advisors are. No, and no. the irony is, I mentioned segmented book of business, the higher you go in those investable asset segments of an advisor's book, the less wallet share they have, typically. Oh. Right Now, you would want the opposite, yeah. but it's very rarely the case. Now, the good advisors, it is the case, but that's about 10% of the advisors. So even if you think you're a trusted advisor, 
The chances are you're really not, and you have to work harder to become a trusted advisor. Now, you can become a trusted advisor, but, and this gets back to, and it's one of the questions that that I submitted to you, it gets, and it gets back to something I said before, how do you achieve that goal? So I'm, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm preempting you asking me that question. Yeah, bring it on, brother. <laughs> I, I'm following. I'm taking notes. Go ahead. <laughs> It's back to what I said about the discovery process. People give lip service to the discovery process and they say, yeah, I have a really good discovery process. Well, typically when we dissect the discovery process, it's really not that good because it's not get the discovery process tends to be essentially tell me about your assets and where are they? That is not a discovery process at all. What the discovery process has to uncover, and usually it takes place over a series of discussions, is what are the emotional factors that make your clients make their financial decisions? That is where the rubber meets the road. So what does it mean to your clients, for example, to take care of their loved ones? What does that mean? Because that's what most of them want to do. They want to take care of their loved ones. Well, what does that mean specifically? How do you get into that discussion? Well, you better have a very well-designed discovery process, right? It's the most critical thing you can do is, is spend hours and days on your discovery process and refine that and never stop refining it. So what does it mean to live a fulfilling life for your clients? So here's the thing. If you have a really good discovery process, it engenders trust. You'll end up working with more and more of your clients' investable assets. But the other thing that happens is they also start requesting help for their non-liquid assets. So then the next logical question is, well, how do I get compensated for that? That's a whole nother subject, but that's, and we, I think we're going to talk about that a little bit, but that's where you want to get to. I mean, you want to get to the point literally where your clients are asking, do you think such and such college is a good place for me to send my my kids to? I mean, that, that's the level of trust you want. You want to, I, I, I worked with an advisor who has had a client whose husband passed away. The first call that woman made was to the advisor. And she said, I, I don't know what to do. My husband passed away and blah. And he said, well, don't worry. We have you covered. We have, there's a great life insurance policy in place. And, and she said, you don't understand. He's in bed here in the room and he's dead. And I'm not sure what to do. This guy was the first call she made because she trusted him to manage the situation because her husband had passed and he was in the room with her. Right now, that's a trusted advisor. But I'll tell you what, you get to that point, yeah. you have a book of business that might be maybe a hundred clients. You're managing all their assets and their and their non-liquid assets. You probably have a retainer-based arrangement with some of them, and you're you have a really good lifestyle. What you're doing is really not only worthy, but it's socially conscious too, right? I mean, you're helping society when you're doing stuff like that. Anyway, I want to get off my soapbox, but you get what I'm talking about. No, I love that. And wow, what a powerful example. And I think that there are people listening to this right now and she'll say, well, that has happened to me. I think what we're challenging you is how frequently is that going to happen? And you can't have that sort of a relationship with 800 clients. And Scott, I want to go back to the bank and credit union vertical that you're in, that you collect all of this data. How do banks do that, dude? I mean, they've got thousands of clients and all sorts of people with their hands in the cookie jar here. How do you help a bank or credit union advisor have that sort of relationship so they're the first call? 
Yeah. So it's a, it's a very interesting career path that you take if you're working in a bank. So typically you would start as uh, what they call a licensed branch employee or an associate advisor. You kind of learn the ropes and then you get promoted to be a branch-based advisor where you're working the branch system. You're relying on not only walk-in traffic, but the relationships that you can develop in your territory with the, the internal partners, the bankers internally, you start getting referrals. But if you get really good, so the, the, the new position, newer or ist, newest position, I should say, in the bank investment services world is what they call, it's the pet name, the second story advisor. It's when you move out of the branches, you're, you become a wealth advisor. You're not reliant on branch traffic anymore. You have such good relationships internally and with your clients that you have a self-sustaining book of business that has organic growth based on referrals. It's a very limited set of clients that you have. And you're doing what typically a good, you know, independent advisor does, but you have the whole support system of a bank. There's something that I'd like to jump into here because your question leads right to it. Okay. The the other question you and I discussed ahead of this is what's the right construct yeah. for a process once yeah. you get there? And I think this is relevant for whether you're working in a bank or not, and you play it a little bit differently if you're not working in a bank. So y- y- one of your objectives as an advisor should be fulfilling the six core needs of your clients. If, if you look at your clients, it doesn't matter how wealthy they are. They're never going to have more than six core needs related to their finances. That's it. And if you focus on servicing every one of the those needs, you are golden as an advisor. So what are those needs? Yeah, what are they? And I'm going to start simple here. So the first Good. one, savings and liquidity, right? Banks can usually handle that pretty easily. I'm going to, I'll go around the horn and then I'll get back to how do you handle these. So savings and liquidity is one. Two is credit. Three is income now, shorter term goals, but income now. Four is income later, typically is retirement oriented goals. Five, and this is a critical one, and I want to discuss this for a little bit. Five is protection and six is legacy. That's it. That covers everything you ever want to cover. So if you as an advisor say, all right, my objective is to help my clients with every one of those needs, then I know I'm a holistic financial advisor. If you're an independent, you you might want to partner with a financial institution for the savings and, and, and the credit needs. And that's relatively easy. But where you really come into play is all the rest. So income now, income later, protection, legacy, right? Those are all you know, very important needs. Now, I, I mentioned protection as a critical need. The majority of advisors out there are, are, are guilty of helping their clients grow their assets, but not helping them protect their assets. Oh, oh man, brother, I absolutely agree with you. How is that doing your job if you're not helping them protect their assets? You know what? I know why, though. Yeah, and I agree with you, but I think a lot of it is because they grew up in the life insurance industry and they hated it so <laughs> much that when they become a CFP or when they become a financial advisor, that is beneath them. But you and I both know that it's actually a fiduciary responsibility for them to make sure that they are having protection. But keep going. I'm right there with you, man. Yeah, and, and it is. It's very simple and it's very logical. It might be a pain in the butt to work with life insurance, but it really isn't if you dedicate yourself to it and you realize that, all right, I'm not looking at life insurance from the perspective of how much money I'm going to make by selling a policy or whatever. It's a completely wrong way to look at it. The right way to look at it is what is it going to do for my relationship with this client, for the trust factor with this client? So that is part of your job. And I mean, I, I can tell you another story. There was somebody I was working with, the executive that runs the program at Regions Bank. They have a big investment program. He runs that program. He has, is a member of a golf club, a 35-year-old, I think it was a chef in the country club, got bit by a brown recluse spider, didn't even know it. 
and he started developing a, a, like a skin irritation and he thought he burned himself on, on the stove. It got worse and worse. His flesh ended up starting to decompose. Yeah. He, he died 35 years oh, old. Oh, he God. died. His wife was in a panic. She found out that he had a half a million dollar life insurance policy with, I think it was Allstate, if I recall correctly, called, called the advisor at Allstate. He said, yep, you have a half million dollar policy, went through the whole thing, sent the money. She moved all of their assets and they had some fairly significant assets, surprisingly, all their assets over to this Allstate advisor because he's the only one that protected the family. So wow. you just have to do that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, Brown Recluse Bear. That's just it's a, it's a nasty story, but it, it it makes a point. Let's talk about legacy too, because I think that's another uh, area of focus that a lot of advisors say they kind of talk about. But then when I ask, well, do you have your kids or your clients' kids, your grandkids? They say no. How do you advise somebody on starting that legacy conversation? Yeah, it's 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 two pronged. It's a two pronged thing. The, the first thing is what you just alluded to, and that is if you're an advisor and you don't have a, a relationship to some degree with that next generation that's going to inherit the money, you're going to lose those assets. There's no doubt about it, right? Ninety five percent of the time, when those yeah. kids get old enough to inherit those assets, it's going elsewhere. Bye bye. Unless you have a really good relationship with them, so you have to do that, and then you have to, as part of your discovery process, and this is the longer term discovery, understand what's important to those kids and how they want to live their life and where they want to live and and all that kind of stuff. But also understand how the parents want that inheritance to affect their kids and or not affect their kids. Maybe even better put, and, and when they want their kids to inherit that money and all that kind. Of, so if if you're wealthy enough to leave a legacy then that's part of it. The other part of it is charity and all the other stuff sure. that, that becomes important. So again, it's just an evolution of that discovery process and becoming that, that trusted advisor. And so that construct is really good because you can check the box on with every client, whether or not you're handling those yep. six needs. If you, if you align your whole practice to servicing those six needs, you're good to go, yeah. right? Well, now let's get back to something that you said earlier, which is how can they have a relationship with the client so that she also consults them on non-financial things, but still make money on it? So how do you, or just give us a, maybe a 5,000 foot view on how you consult people to create some sort of retainer structure for yeah. them to be able to, to get paid on that? So let's think about the way compensation has evolved in our industry. What did it used to be? It was all commissions, stockbrokers, right? They made commissions off of selling stocks. Well, that evolved into AUM fees based on assets under management. Is it going to stop there? I, I sincerely doubt it because there are so many problems with fees based on AUM, right? One of the most obvious ones is if I'm an advisor and you're my prospect and I tell you what I do, and you say to me, yeah, that sounds great. How much does it cost? If I'm honest, my answer to you is, well, I don't know. How much do you have? Oh, God, I hear that. All <laughs> right? I know exactly what you're talking about, dude. Yeah. The other thing is that if you have a client with $10 million of assets and a client with $5 million of assets, you're doing materially the same thing for both, but you're charging one twice as much as the other, right? There, there are all kinds of issues. There's a lack of alignment too. I mean, the other example I give is if you're advisors and we go through another 2008 where the market crashes, does your job become harder or easier? Well, if you're a good advisor, it becomes a lot harder because you're calling every single client. You're talking them yep. away from the ledge. You're telling them, don't worry, we have a plan. Stick with it. Don't do anything crazy, blah, blah, blah. 
So your job becomes a lot harder, but you're earning less money because AUNs have tanked. I mean, the assets, the value have, yeah. has tanked, right? So there's a lot of examples I can give. The, the question is, what is the next step? If, yep. if it's not going to stop, if our compensation as advisors is not going to stop with AUM-based fees, what's next? And most of us can figure it out. But here's the thing. This is a good thought exercise if you're an advisor. Here's what I'll say. I'll say, all right, the products and solutions you provide have no commissions and no fees. They're just tools you use to solve for your client's needs. So you just charge your clients based on the value of the service that you provide. That's what you're charging your, your clients on. So this is a thought exercise, right? So if that's your fee structure, how are you going to structure it and how much are you going to charge? Right? So that's an interesting thought exercise. So what's the point? Well, the point is the natural evolution is towards what I'll call uh, a retainer-based relationship. Because if you're a really good advisor, you're definitely doing more things than just managing liquid assets. So you're going to have with a percentage of your clients, you're going to have a retainer-based, a, a fee-for-service-based relationship. Now, how do you get there? It's stutter steps. So I often get asked by my clients and, and my clients truth be told, are typically companies versus advisors, but they're asking the question for advisors. And they say, should we charge for a financial plan? And I say, no. And they say, why? And my answer is, well, you're not charging for a financial plan. You're charging for another level of service. So for those clients that you're going to create a financial plan for, what else are you going to package around the financial plan? Is it going to be a twice a year review meeting, a policy review for insurance? Is it going to be a meeting with the entire family to talk about legacy, blah, blah, package a bunch of stuff around. And oh, by the way, a, a comprehensive financial plan, but create a whole service level around that, brand it, have a name for it, and say, that's what you charge for, as opposed to just saying, oh, you want a financial plan? We charge $2,500 for it. Well, that's dumb, right? No, just, and part of this is positioning, but it also is managing expectations. So a client realizes if you're going to put the work into a financial plan, there are a bunch of other things that you're expecting from the client at the same time. So you have a really good comprehensive relationship where you're able to engender their trust and provide the degree of service that is appropriate if you're going to put the time into creating a financial plan. The last thing you want is to create a financial plan, charge $2,500, have that plan in a desk drawer that never gets looked at again, and then have another advisor call that client and, and offer them something better and they're off and running. You know, don't charge for a financial plan, charge for a whole service level that includes that. And I like that you're talking about in, in the way that I'm hearing you say that it, it is baby steps. It is an incremental thing, but you can't just turn off one thing and turn on something else. Right. There have been advisors so many years ago when I was at the old coaching and consulting company that I worked with, I had this these two guys who lived in California and that's what they did. Now, this was 12 years ago. Wow. It was they had like three different levels and they it was a retainer that the people wrote a check for every year in one lump sum. This wasn't like a monthly Netflix model. These were people stroking checks and it was 10, 15 and 25,000. And they said, we don't ever sell. We literally just collect payment because Scott, what you're talking about is the value that they brought to them and that how much of a difference that not just their financial planning and I'm air quoting there because that was something that they did, but their family management, all of the things that they added up, these people wouldn't even think twice about that, which I think is absolutely fascinating. Now, as we wrap up today's show, I have two follow-up questions for you. And then I want to make sure that we get everybody an opportunity to connect with you to find out a little bit more about who you are and what you can do for them. 
if an advisor wants to have the opportunity to plug into a bank or credit union, do you guys help with that? Do you have connections with that? Or can you provide consultation and guidance on how that might happen? The answer to all of those questions is yes. Good. And there are a number of structures that it can happen under. If that is an interest, give me a call and let's brainstorm. Like I said, we work with the third-party broker dealers. We work with the banks directly. We work with organizations that 1099 advisors into banks. I mean, there's a lot of different structures. So certainly that's something we could brainstorm over. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. Now, the data that you gather is unbelievable. I mean, I'm sure you've heard of Moss Adams. But your guys are like your own Moss Adams, right? I, I always love when the Moss Adams report comes out because it talks about compensation, all sorts of neat things. And you guys provide that. Can other people get access to that data? Like I'd like to, if I was an independent advisor, I'd like to see how I benchmarked against the guy at the credit union down the street or what their top, you know, quartile uh, looked like. Is that information that people can get access to or is that like totally private? Yeah, no, they can. There's it's a subscription model to our data portal, okay. but but it is very much designed for executives running investment programs sure, uh, sure. in banks and credit unions. So there are a lot of penetration metrics, like how well are they doing penetrating into their deposit base? How well are they doing penetrating into their household base? I mean, we have stuff like product mix and, and average advisor productivity and all that kind of stuff. But if you're an independent advisor, that's going to be less interesting. We do fairly often, we do white papers that would probably be more interesting. And those white papers are usually sponsored by Cetera or LPL or some of the Raymond James or some of the broker dealers. But there's a lot of ways in which we share information. Obviously, our podcasts are another way that we do it. So again, if you have an interest in the stuff that we do, just reach out, right? I mean, that's the easiest way. Well, let's go ahead and just tee you up, brother. What's the best way for them to reach out to you? Yeah, well, so our website is stathispartners.com. I am active on LinkedIn primarily. That would be a good way to do it. My email address is scott at stathispartners.com. That's a good one too. Everybody needs to subscribe to your podcast. So we're going to have all three podcasts linked into the show notes. Which podcast do you think is more applicable to the independent advisor channel? Industry leadership and success. Good, good, good. That's my favorite one. In fact, as I was preparing for the podcast, I had listened to a couple of those really fascinatingly different than what I think a lot of other podcasts are, because I love how it's structured and I love how you draw out the information from these people. I actually learned a couple of really good things that I didn't use on you, but I plan on using on other people <laughs> with some of your techniques. So Scott, I want to thank you very much uh, for taking some time today. Like I said, we'll make sure that we have all of the links in the show notes, but we're going to need to go ahead and wrap it up today. Is there anything you'd like to say before we say goodbye? No. Hey, thank you, uh, Matt, for inviting me on. And we just, so the last plug, we just, this, this will be interesting to you. This morning recorded a podcast on what I'll call shareholder democracy and ESG investing. That was a fascinating discussion. So we'll probably release that in a couple of weeks. So be on the lookout for that. That's awesome. I want everybody listening to, to once again, when I had said, I want you to go back and listen to those six minutes. There's so much meat in this short podcast that should be unpacked in your mind. But please understand that you don't have to do this in a vacuum. Scott has opportunities for you as an advisor to engage him and his team and brainstorm take that opportunity, sit down and have him ask you questions and walk you through some things. When you have the strong foundation that Scott was talking about today, you can build 
as large of a practice as you want on that foundation. But if you don't have that strong foundation of what is your process, what makes you truly fundamentally unique and different, really, how are you going to be moving forward in the world today compared to thinking about things as my another guest that I had on earlier today says, Matt, most people are you're still marketing like it's 1985. We also have to communicate like it's 2000 and whatever the hell it is right now, 2021, instead of in the 90s. People want things that are different. And the neat thing about working with Scott and his team is he has his finger on the pulse with so much data that he can provide you with great guidance and great advice. So for everybody with uh, Scott and all of us here at Proudmouth, if you have not subscribed to the podcast, make sure you click that subscribe now button below. That way, every time we come out with a new podcast, show up directly on your listening device. And finally, if you know somebody who really does need this information, it's super easy. Just click that share button. And what will happen then is you will enlighten somebody on how they can truly have the financial services practice they've always wanted. This is Matt Halloran. I'll see you on the other side of the mic very soon. Thanks for listening to the Top Advisor Marketing Podcast brought to you by Proudmouth. If you want to learn more about how you can be your own loud, visit our website, read our blog posts, attend our educational webinars, and sign up for our new Influence Accelerator Academy, where you too can learn how to truly be an influencer in your space. Have a wonderful day.